On the 23rd of December 1996, French socialite Madame Sophie Tuscan de Plantier was found murdered a couple of hundred metres from her holiday home near the coastal town of Skull in West Cork. The investigation later showed that Madame Duplantier received several lacerations to her body and received several brutal blows to the head which ultimately resulted in her losing her life. To this day, no one has been convicted of the murder and it has continued to divide opinions among people nationally and internationally. However, one man's name continues to be linked to this incident. Ian Bailey was convicted of murder in absentia in France in 2010. His extradition has been blocked three times by the Irish courts. The fact remains, Ian's DNA has never been found or linked to the crime scene. All of the current evidence is circumstantial as echoed by the DPP here in Ireland. I spoke to the man at the centre of this murder mystery to try and find out and learn more about his life and to hear the story from the side of the accused. Today, Ian Bailey is behind the mic. Thank you for joining me this morning on Behind the Mic, Ian. Um, I know you have a busy day planned ahead. Um, So I'm interested in getting to know you um, because there's been an awful lot said about you. You are a convicted murderer in France, not in Ireland. so I suppose uh-huh. I want to get to know the really in Bailey, um, aside from what the media says. Okay. You well, shall bo- I shall I uh, start? So, so my name my name is Ian Kenneth Bailey. I'm a Anglo-Welsh Hibernian. That's to say, my mother's line was Welsh. Actually, I found out my Scottish my father's line was Scottish. So, I, I only recently found that out. It's interesting. And I've been a blow-in here in uh, Ireland and in West Cork now for 30 years, blowing in the wind. Um, I'm a poet, a journalist by background. Um, I came here in 1991. And, uh, you know, my life's very strange. Nobody's had a life like mine. Um, You know, I was falsely accused of a crime I had nothing to do with back in 1997. Uh, the murder of uh, Madame Sophie Toscan de Planty, a French socialite, had nothing to do with that. I was a reporter. I was uh, the lead reporter on the case. And then after about five weeks after the murder, I was quite brutally arrested by Angada Shia Khanna and accused of the crime. And uh, my life had been dominated by, I suppose, that event for, for 30, uh, 26 years now. Mm back in i know you can't take me back to 1957 because in that case you'd have an um, extraordinary memory but what was growing up can you give me a small um indication as to what life was like for you in your early years back in manchester in yeah, 1957 well, I, I actually, i've actually written about this in my poetry books i have two books of poetry out the west court way and john wayne state of mind and i actually wrote I mean, it was the toughest poem that i wrote, uh, wrote. it was about growing up um lot long lost memories of youth if i was to tell you the truth which is a poet i'm obliged to do i have a few fragmented memories of my youth i can recall nothing whatsoever of my birth to brenda in st mary's hospital in manchester on a cold january night in 1957 all the first months and in that respect it's fair to say i miss my very own beginning as of course we all do <laughs> anyway and so i grew up in um 
I was born in Manchester and my father was a master butcher. Uh, and we had a shop in Stockport, which is now part of Greater Manchester. And I grew up in the um, above and behind and in front of the butcher's shop, Kenneth Bailey, of master butchers. And when I was born, my father had the sign writer come in and say, right, change the sign to Kenneth Bailey and son. Bless him. I lost him back in 2000. He passed away. I actually was with, with, with him um, or with him the night before he passed away. And he passed away quite peacefully. He had a smile on his face. Um, and then, yeah. So and I, now he taught me how to read. And my mother taught me how to write. And I very, very quickly took a It's interesting when we think, think back. I'm, you know, I'm a po poet. I've got a poetic soul. I might be a romantic fool with a poetic soul. But um, we get these things called nursery rhymes, don't we? Mm -hmm. You might be able to remember some of them. And actually, they call them nursery rhymes, but actually they're, they're poems for young children. You know, Hickory Dickory Dock, the, the mouse ran up the clock, and Jack and Jill went up the hill to get a pail of water, all of that stuff. And that's poetry. And so I, I grew up with a love of words. Um, and... Um, I remember the first real poem that my father gave me a copy of, If, Rudyard Kipling's If, and it served me well because it advises you if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Great poem. So your your I suppose your your inquisitive and your way with your inquisitive nature and your way with words was probably stoked from a young age. Um, it sounds mm -hmm. mostly by your father, yeah. Well, my father and my mother. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I went I went to school. You know, when we're growing up, we don't realize how lucky we are. I mean, when I look back, I, I never suffered any abuse or any deprivations of food because my father was a butcher, mm -hmm. uh, best of protein. Yeah. Um, in fact, actually, my, my father courted my mother, Brenda, with by taking um, uh, meat around to Brenda's mother, um, Annie, uh, that's how he sort of got in. And they, they met in the cycling club, uh, Stockport Harriers uh, Cycling Club. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting because he he was a bit of a shy guy and he, he saw my mum. My mum's very beautiful, Brenda. I've got a lovely photograph of her. And uh, he was a bit shy and he went over to her and he had some dates, you know, date, dates from yep. the desert in a bag. And he said, uh, would you like one of these? And she said, what? He said, a date. And that's how they began. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, yeah. I, I, I still use that. I still use that line. Well, I might use that line if I could maybe, you know, try to chat of a lady or something. I don't know. And so, you, so like, question. Yeah. Okay. So, so it sounds, it sounds like you had a nice childhood, definitely in your younger years. And then you moved to Gloucestershire to go to secondary school. And that's kind of where you began your journalism. Um, where you began to write yeah, on well, rugby I, well, matches so, and so, football so, matches. Yeah, so so what happened was we we, we lived in um, Manchester in Stockport, and then my father um, became a he was a master butcher and he became a, 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 a peripatetic teacher of butchering. And we moved around a few places, and then we settled. He uh, bought a house in Gloucester, and that's where uh, I went to uh, what we call junior school, and then subsequently. Uh, secondary school, and I, I was selected for a, what they call a grammar school. And I went to an ancient grammar school, which was founded in 1642, I think, called the Crypt. It has a Latin song, 
And I remember for the first year, all first years at the school then had to wear shorts. And I'm the tallest boy in the class, head and shoulders above any other lads. And I've got the, you have to wear shorts in the first year there. It would be illegal now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was a good school. It had a Latin song and very good teachers. I had a great interest in history, history, writing, English, biology, science and things. And I, I was lucky and I did what we call O-levels, mm -hmm. or used to call moral levels. And I got my O-levels and then I went into uh, I, 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 journalism. I was indentured in, into journalism by a great uh, freelance journalist called John Hawkins. He's still alive and lives in... Um, in, in, in uh, the Welsh borders now, I think. And he trained me as a journalist. And uh, um, so he was a correspondent for all of Fleet Street. Um, and then I worked for him. He trained me for four years, I think. And then I left him. And then I started my own freelance practice in a town called Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, which I know is known, which I know, know, is known to many, many an Irishman. Particularly because of Cheltenham Race, we have Week. a good we have a good record there. You certainly do, and uh, I, I, so I, so I started on my own practice. Actually, during Cheltenham Race Week, I would earn more money than any other week of the year as a freelance journalist because I'd be working for the um, all of, pretty well all of the papers. Uh, not doing sport now, I'd be doing the what they call the gossip columns. Okay. Like who, who, and like and that, that's where I met Diana for the first time. Diana Spencer, um, you know Prince Charles's uh, yeah. um, wife. So, yeah. how well acquainted would you have been with her? Would you have been on a, a speaking basis, or would it have just no, been? No, I mean, what, the funny thing was that she because she um, he bought a place in Gloucestershire called Highgrove, uh, and as royals, they did like um, public meetings and came to things. And she was always very beautiful. She was very tall, beautiful, sapphire, sapphire blue eyes. And I was always the tallest guy in the press pack. And she'd been, we'd, she flirted actually with, with her eyes, and uh, as you know, it's been noted by others. But I wouldn't have known her personally, but she always smiled at me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And so after. After Cheltenham, you moved to London, and where you kind of—that's where your kind of career took off a bit. You worked on some well, kind of high-profile cases. I was actually working between Gloucestershire and London. I, you know, with Fleet Street, and I go up to London to work on on shifts and papers. Uh, um, the big story that I worked on, I think it was back in the nineteen eighties, uh, was a, there was a there's a place in Cheltenham called GCHQ, which for your listeners is the government uh, communications headquarters. It's a sort of secret um, spying, uh, international spying base for the for the British, you know, um, empire or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a spy found there working, um, a man called Jeffrey Arthur Prime, uh, who was spying for the Russians ostensibly. And it was a big, big story back in the 80s. And I, I was, you know, once again, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, and I was the lead journalist, and I, I broke a lot of stories about that, the Jeffrey Prime spying scandal. And can you fill me in? How what does it take to be? How how do you become so informed when a news when a news story is breaking? How do you how do you get there first? What's involved in you know? Because well, you mean, said that you were breaking stories quickly. 
Right. Well, it, it works one or two ways. I mean, you might find a story for yourself. As I would, you know, I, I am was a very good journalist and an investigative journalist. I worked for the Sunday Times Insight team, which was probably the best. Uh, uh, Evans, the editor, put the, together this concept of a team of journalists who would go out and investigate serious subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was seconded into them on occasions. I, le- I learned a lot, and I, you know, I mean, the techniques of a journalist are interesting. A journalist is only as good as his contacts or her contacts. Um, I had a very good nose for news. I knew what a good story was. Um, so it works one or two ways. You instigate your own stories where you somebody says to you, you know, I've got some information here. There's something going on. And then you investigate that. Or you get a call from a newspaper saying, we've got a story we'd like you to look at. And... Um, and that's called a commission, you know, where you, you work for a, a paper uh, exclusively on their story. Um, yeah. So, and ha- so, so you were kind, you kind of became a bit um, disenamored and and fell out of love with with yeah, the, the rat race I'll, and the I'll, London I'll, way of life, didn't you? Yeah, a bit fast paced. Ultimately, looking back. Um, I, uh, you see, I'd always liked words and poetry was my first love. Um, and uh, in London, 90% of my friends just happened to be Irish. The people I got on best with were Irish. And I, I formed this opinion that the, the Irish generally are far more intelligent and or intelligent or well-versed in, in knowledge than, than their English counterparts. Uh, and I had contacts in, in Ireland, and I came over on a holiday, and I came over on another holiday. And then I had a contact in West Cork, and he said, well, we've got a holiday home in, in, in Crookhaven, right on the mm-hmm. end of the Mism. And I thought, I've had enough of this, um, you know, London rat race stuff. I can earn an income anywhere I go because I'm a freelance journalist writing in English. And so I came over to Ireland. In 1991, I started writing poetry immediately, um, and then we did various jobs, um, and it was great for me because I'd like being in offices and a suit very often. And I started working. I worked on farms. I worked on a farm in County Waterford uh, with the Shanahans, lovely mm-hmm. people. Still there. Um, and uh, oh, shall I tell you about that very quickly? Sure. Yeah. So. So I had the contact with the Shanahans, and they said, well, look, if you come over here, we, we, we can't pay you, but we, we can, what we can do is you, we can accommodate you and feed you and, and, and give you work to do on the farm. So I went along and I met Will, who's the now the father died there a little while back. And he said, right, we've got 150 acres here of barley. It's coming up to ripen. There are these creatures in the air called crows or praycons. We want you to go out in the morning with a shotgun and keep the crows from eat, eating lightning barley. So basically, they gave me they gave me a flat cap and they gave me a gun and they sent me off to the swords. And I, it was interesting because I didn't have to kill the crows. I just had to stop them. You enough like 20,000 crows. They flatten the barley. You know, if they landed on the fields of barley, yeah. the crops can't, can't be harvested. So, And I was quite adept in doing that. And I was there for about three months. Uh, I, I killed one or two crows almost accidentally, and I wrote poems. And then I went back to 
skull where I'd, or Westcourt where I left my winter clothes, my, you know, like gansies and yeah. coats. And I was actually, the idea was I was probably, I'd been given a, a chance of working on a fishing boat out of Tremor mm-hmm. uh, as not a fisherman, but I, like in the kitchen because I'm really good with food. Okay. Um, and I was going to, you know, my idea was to go back to Tremor and work the winter on the fishing boats, but then I found work in Skull at a fish plant. Uh, this is, you know, t- this is 30 years ago yeah. coming up. And while I was working at the fish plant in Skull, a lady came down and she was looking for black sole. And I said, we don't have any black sole. There is some place. She said, I don't like place. And she was Welsh and interesting. We started chatting and she was an artist, Jules Thomas, a great artist. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently we became a sort of, um, you know, an item. And she had a, a house where a studio house where I, I could live, and then eventually, you know, became lovers and had a you know a, a romantic entanglement. And um, and I was do- at that time I was doing all sorts of jobs. I was a spalpeen, a spalpeen farnack. I was working doing farm some farm late. You were a wandering but, man. Yeah, well, around the West Cork area, but I'd, I'd be planting cabbages for. Um, no farmer now, he's dead, called Camille, doing jobs here and there. But I was always at the time writing for the Southern Star, mm-hmm. you know, the, the great, uh, great organ of, of West Cork. Absolutely. Uh, and, and the what was then the Cork um, Examiner, which is now the Irish Examiner. Yeah. So, you know, I heard it. Uh, well, yeah, and then I went back into full-time journalism back in 1996, uh, and I was flying it, and then at the Christmas of, on the Monday before Christmas of 1996, Monday the 23rd of December, I had a phone call from a, a journalist, Eddie Cassidy, on the examiner, telling me that there had been a crime committed, a body found, uh, and he, he put me on the story, you know, and yeah. I went... Uh, out uh, and as they say the rest is history no, well, that's, anyway. yeah that's that's that christmas i suppose fundamentally changed your life and how you could live your life um forever yeah, they did and i i just like to say this as well i've got the greatest sympathy for madame sophie toscan de Plantier's family i know i was convicted in france in my absence the whole case against me is totally erroneous. I had nothing to do with it. And this has been shown in, for instance, the DPP's 2001 uh, analytical critique of the Garda case that they were trying to make against me, that it was a total load of, uh, can I say bollocks? Mm-hmm. You can say whatever you want. Okay. Within reason. Uh, it's interesting when we got the Bandon tapes, which contained conversations of guards, detectives plotting to frame me, when we got the transcripts of them, and this is a cultural thing, the English would say bollocks, B-O-L-L-O-C-K-S. But when bollocks was used, and it was used about me in the Bandon tapes, it, it's, trans, it's B-O-L-L-I-X. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so, you know, and, and then, I mean, I'm ne- I've, I've been protesting my innocence since my first arrest. I was arrested. Uh, I've been arrested twice domestically, once in uh, 1997 and then again in 1998. My 
partner was arrested on two occasions too and accused of being complicit in um you know the the this the murder case and then i've been arrested three times on um european arrest warrants okay which i have challenged in the irish courts we went to the supreme court in the first one and uh, the the judgment was very very firmly five bench supreme court which is like you know high stuff um and they rejected my uh, extradition and rendition to the French authorities. Uh, but under French Bonaparte law, you don't really have to have any evidence in the way that we would under our common law system to to prosecute and persecute somebody. All you need to do is basically accuse. And that's because their law is based upon a man called, everybody knows him, Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm hmm. Uh, and he uh, created a legal system in France, which is still in force, which gives the French uh, something called extraterritorial constitutionality, which means if a French person is, say, shall we say, run over by somebody, say in Ireland, uh, and the, the, the driver, the French can apply for the person in Ireland to be extradited to France and tried over there. And, and that's what they tried to do to me. You know, no. yeah. So, yeah. Can I ask you just a couple of questions about like that morning and how it like unfolded for you? Um, because you're a journalist. Um, like you received a call. Was it from the Irish? Uh, one of the well, journalists. Eddie, 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 the, the first I heard of it was Eddie Cassidy of the then Cork Examiner rang me and told me, and then I listened to the radio news at two o'clock, and it reported the fact that there'd been um, a, a body found. Under suspicious circumstances, okay. Uh, and would he have been notified by uh, a guard at the scene? Like he would have obviously had contacts within, you know, guard stations around yeah, Ireland. I, I assume. I, I, I think there's evidence that JP Toomey, who was then the superintendent in charge of Bantry, where I live not too far from Bantry now, um, rang him and uh, tipped him off. You know, as I said earlier on, a journalist is only as good as his contacts. You know, yeah. and if you've got good contacts, you will hear stuff. Um, you know, before anybody else. So I guess that's how he heard about it. And so you you would have left your home as quickly as possible, being like, you know, trying to be as good a journalist yeah. and get to the scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. get as much information as you can at all, as fast yeah. as you can, yeah? I mean, the, 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 the scale was, that. well, the original plan for that Monday, the 23rd, was that Jules and myself were going to go to, I didn't have a car then, she was driving, um to Skibbereen to do our last minute Christmas shopping. Um, the previous day, the Sunday, I had um, chopped the top off a Christmas tree, a Sitka spruce tree to make a Christmas tree for the house. And we'd had three turkeys that year. Um, we've the, the idea was, well, we used to fatten up turkeys, maybe two, three of them and sell two of them and then have one, the biggest one, for, for our Christmas table. And in the process of um, uh, killing the turkeys, I got a slight scratch to my in my hairline, not, not a particularly big one. And I got some scratches on my arms from pulling down the top of the Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was used against me and, and amplified. And Anyway... Yeah, I mean, this is really, really upsetting because I mean, I've been, I've been trying to record my own podcast, and look, 
And it's taken me right back in. And I found it emotionally absolutely draining and taking me back, you know, oh, 26 years. Yeah, yeah. It's a long time and it's hard to remember everything. And then, and then, you see, what happened then subsequently was that I met a guy called, and everybody knows him, a national treasure called Jim Sheridan. Won't, yes. I, I took a, eventually, I took a case against the state for wrongful arrest and a very, various other allegations under tort law. And Jim um, was working for the Independent, was he? No, no. Jim, Jim Sheridan was it, it is independent, but no, he's you know he's you know, everybody knows Jim Sheridan, don't they? You know, he's directed five Oscar-winning uh, films. And I took a case against the Irish state and the Gar- and Galicia Khanna back in 2014. And we had to go up to Dublin for that in the, in the, the Kerry Court and the, 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 the four courts. And I, he came along and he introduced himself to me, uh, told me that he was very interested in this whole case and he thought that there was something wrong. And subsequently, I cooperated with him and, uh, over a five-year period, I think, and he made a documentary. Uh, oh, and he got is right. So scale. So he, I, I agreed to cooperate with him, and I was giving him access. Um, oh, and two podcasters as well, Sam Bungie uh, and Jennifer Ford. And so Jim went to the BBC in London and pitched his idea of a documentary to the head of commissioning uh, at Storyville, uh, Kate, um, a, a lady anyway. And she said, yeah, we'll take the documentary. It's a great story. We'll take the documentary. Uh, and that was the plan. And then the lady who commissioned him was recruited by Netflix. And she took his idea over to Netflix. Mm. And Netflix then uh, got a guy, another team to produce like a rival documentary and they both came out in 2000 and what are we now 2020 that was 2020 wasn't it they came out i think it was 2020 so they came out and jim made a five-parter for sky and the netflix people made a three-parter a piece of um demonizing propaganda which was actually partly produced by the french family and um, at, just before it came out, my long-term partner, Jill, Miss Thomas, um, made it known to me that our long journey was over and she wanted me to vacate her place. And uh, my life started to unravel. Yeah, uh, it, it was, I'd said that that was a tar- turmoil time again. I, oh, I, I have it, seen, yeah. yeah. Did, anyway. So I, I did my best to try to find an alternative accommodation. I started to move all my things out. I was very civil. Um, she was very cold, but that's okay. And I found what they call temporary emergency accommodation provision. Um, and I was in that for six months. And then I found uh, private rented accommodation, which I'm still in at the moment. Although, ironically, I'm facing another upheaval because the landlord has served me a not a notice of termination of tenancy. And he, he's a very nice landlord, actually, but he, he, he wants to redevelop the place or sell it. And he want, he's let me know that he, he, he... So I'm having to look for accommodation. And as we know today, the 1st of April, 
what a great day to do it on, wasn't it? What an April Fool's show, people. I know. I mean, it's so. I mean, I'm, you know, once again, I'm in quite a perilous and anxiety-making situation. Yeah, yeah, it's get, it's getting I, yeah, difficult. I, I mean, one of my ways of dealing, coping mechanisms for dealing with the shite, as I call it, is to bury my head in a bucket of creativity. And that creativity takes different forms. It's like I, I, I wood carving and working with wood or I'm an amateur carpenter. Um, but I started to record a podcast, Ian Bailey, in his own words. And I was working with a sound engineer. We have episodes one and two recorded and perfected. And unfortunately, an episode one was supposed to go out on St. Patrick's Day. But my, my collaborator and sound technician, Mark, was involved in a, in a serious motorcycle accident. And it, it can't, and he's got the master recordings. So I haven't been able to bring out episode one um, or two, three, there are three episodes, three hour long episodes. Uh, and I think I'm going to have to re record them. I've scripted them. And I'm actually going to be putting up an advert on my social media platforms for a technician to, to help me re redo them and get mm -hmm. them out there. Can I um and and um yeah anyone that's listening to this make sure and, uh, and watch out on Ian's Instagram for for updates on that or his uh, TikToks and things. But can I ask you about the morning of the the murder again, Ian? With the mm -hmm. so when you were writing, like some of the articles you wrote about were, um, you you kind of followed the line of inquiry that it was um it was. A hitman kind of carried out the, the attack um, on the orders of Daniel Tuscan de Plantier. Um, not not exactly that, but I mean, the thing is this: when when there is a murder, now we know you know the guards have to do their job, the police authorities have to do their job. One of the first questions you ask is who benefits from a, a crime. And I did find out that there was a large amount of insurance money upon the head of Madame Toscan de Plantier, which on her demise went to her husband, uh, Daniel, head of the French Film National Film um, Society or whatever. And he was the beneficiary of the, um, the insurance money. Mm -hmm. And when new news was relayed to France, and it was first relayed by a man called Callanan, who subsequently became uh, a, 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 the Garda Commissioner. Remember Callanan? Yeah. Who had to uh, retire or resign. Um, he assured the French family they knew who the killer was and that he, they even gave them my name. So they were, they were told... So this, right, was, right. this was almost immediately they had you or they, they were passing information on about you yeah, to yeah. the French. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, within within days of the murder. Um, anyway, sorry, go, go back to your question. I may be um, digressing a bit, but... Oh, yeah, and the other thing is this. Okay, so when, when the murder happened, okay, did he come over to identify the body of his wife? Did he hell? Mm -hmm. He wasn't anywhere near Ireland. And he let the parents come over to identify her. Uh, and um, I don't know, it was just suspicious. And the other thing is that the, the, the isolated form of famine cottage that she, uh, that he bought for her back in 1991, 
is so isolated, you wouldn't stumble on it in a month of Sundays. Yeah. It's at the end of what I call a blind boreen, which goes up up the mountain overlooking Roaring Water Bay. You would not find it by accident, you know. Yeah. Um. So it was very strange, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and how? So, so were you, when you were writing them articles, you were kind of just, I suppose, hypothesizing. Is that fair to say, or did yeah, you actually? Yeah, well, so... Go on, sorry. Or did you actually have like a, a line of inquiry? You know, did you have contacts that were kind of feeding you what you thought at the time was credible information? Well, I, I know one of her. I knew. I, see, I'd done some gardening work for her neighbour, a man who's now passed away, uh, Alf Lyons. Um, it's been suggested that I met her. But I never, I didn't meet her. I wasn't introduced to her. But um, Alf Lyons told me that she very, she on occasions she, she had come over to Ireland with a, a male companion who was not her husband, mm-hmm. um, and a man, a, a man called Bruno, who was yeah. her lover. So it was. So I, I you know. You're being a journalist. You ask questions. You, you know, you pick up bits and pieces, and um, yeah. So you see, this is taking me right back now. This is this is going to upset my weekend in a way because it'll be in my head. Um, so where are we now? Right, so, right. So, what, so what you're writing about? articles, and unbeknownst to you, you you are. Like there's a case building against you. Uh, there's a couple of locals, I suppose, throwing their hat in the ring, saying some things about you. But you're 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 following a completely different line, or I suppose, um, unbeknownst to you at the time, you were like there's a case being built up against you. Or had you kind yeah. of had, did you start to understand that you were kind of being put in the frame for this murder? Yeah, I did. I did. It it started to come back to me that people were telling that you you were the the murderer and it was and the guards and this is provable in the dpp's report um robert sheehan's report were going round our neighbors and the whole of the missing peninsula telling people i was the murderer um and you know that's that's pretty that's like terrorism really because it's putting fear into people's hearts and some people chose to believe that lie uh, and, it, and then it started mm-hmm. to feed back to me. And it was a very strange time, actually. Really weird. Yeah. And, and so when you started kind of hearing them rumours, did that kind of put a halt to your writing then? Or did you kind of just con- continue writing, you know, what you what you felt could be credible? Or was it like, you know, did you kind of have to stop yourself there and kind of give yourself time to think about what, what you were being accused of? Well, no, I mean, I carried on reporting, uh, not only on that story, but other stories I was, you know, not, not connected with the murder. I just carried on, you know, and, um, but it was very, very strange. Yeah. You know, and then, and then I, you see, I was arrested on, I think it was February the 11th, Monday, Monday. Yeah, it was a Monday, Monday before St. Valentine's Day, anyway, in February. I was taken off and quite a hostile, aggressive arrest. And I had a guy, I was handcuffed. And the guy next to me, Culligan, uh, was kept poking me in the arm really painfully. He'd obviously got the worked out technique of 
giving somebody a really painful poke and he's saying, everybody knows you've done it, you've done it, you've done it. just admit it. Every, nobody's got a good word to say about you. And they were using basically what the Americans call a psychological operation where you... Yeah. you um, and, and then, I, so I was taken to Bandon. There was a cameraman already waiting at the barrack in Bandon, photographed me going in. And then I was taken in and cautioned and given the right to a solicitor. Uh, and then it was, I was detained for 12 hours. Then, and it was very, very hostile and aggressive uh, because, you know, I'm an English guy or Anglo-Welsh, whatever. And one of the cops said to me, do you think an Englishman is going to get away with doing murdering her? Uh, and I, there was definitely a tone of xenophobia about mm -hmm. the guards who were interrogating me. And what, like there was obviously... Oh, yeah. um... oh, sorry, sorry. And, yeah, so, so I'm being interrogated, I'm being accused. And then I didn't know that Jules had been arrested. Uh, but a guy came in and said, uh, we've arrested Jules and she's accepted that you murdered um, the woman. And I'm like uh, gobsmacked, or I don't like that expression. I'm flabbergasted. And, um, you know, then I was released after 12 hours. I was told I couldn't. Oh, yes. Well, when they released me, they told me, one, Jules doesn't, which was two of the house that we called it the studio house where I, I'd been living and writing and working. And three, there's a hanging mob waiting for you in Skull. Um, so I spent that first night after the arrest at a friend's house. It was just really taking me back into, into the thing. Yeah. Eventually, I went back to the prairie on the Wednesday. There was a huge number of people outside. It's a little isolated cottage. There was a, an enormous number of media. I was in the back of a van. I went in, and then the door started, windows and doors started being knocked on by members of the media. And um, I gave various interviews to people like John Kieran's, Paddy Clancy, um, and... Um, all the time, you know, I, and the reason I did that was used against me subsequently was because if you're falsely accused of a crime, you, you, you what are you going to do? Mm. I, you want to clear you know, your name, I suppose. Yeah. Now I'm a media animal. You know, I, I'm familiar with the media, so I, I took the approach. I'm going to get make statements, telling my side of the story. You know. And then, uh, God, it was weird, weird. weird. Uh, oh, yeah. So, and then, and then the guards start to manipulate certain people. Um, and I further accused of interfering with a witness who allegedly saw me not too far from the crime in the early hours of the morning, which was a piece of erroneous nonsense. This is Marie Farrell, who, who, Marie Farrell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the guards went to great lengths to convince her that I was the murderer. Now, that in psychology, that's called. When you've done that, somebody say, I say, I do, you know, that that David, he's right, fuck it. Do you know? I saw him doing this, that, or the other, the other night. Now, there might be people out there who don't like you. 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. But if they don't like you, they'll choose to believe that negative story. And that was what happened with Maria Farrell. And she subsequently, many years later, withdrew all the statements and fair play to her, you know, told the truth that she was manipulated by the guards. Yeah. And like then then there was the the guards seemed to believe then that it was you had uh, bullied her or coerced her or, or manipulated her into um, to, to retracting her statement. Yeah, well, that was much later on. But I mean, the guard, the guard, what happened was, and I know the names of the guards, I think some of them are still alive, so I may just be a bit careful about it. Um, they created a false narrative upon a false narrative uh, that I had been um, somehow menacing her and got her to make statements, sign statements to that effect. And that's, I think, that was the grounds to my second arrest in January of 1998. Yeah. And I take it, like, in your view, it was the opposite was happening. They were coercing her and telling her what she should say and what should be said in order to pin you. Yeah, Uh, and it's interesting because we eventually, at some point, we got the statements um, that she had given. And some of the statements started off dated on one date. And then they were signed and dated at the end of the statement on another date. You know, it was... uh... And then there was... There was... just, while, just while we're talking about this, and this came up a couple of weeks ago, you remember, right, so eventually I went up to UCC and studied law and came away with three degrees of law, and I wrote a master's thesis on police accountability in Ireland. It was got a first-class mark, which is unusual, rare. And the Kerry Babies case came up. And it's interesting, you saw, I think it was it last week or a week, the week before, yeah. two people were arrested, high-profile, the names actually didn't weren't used in the media. My name was given out to the media. My name was all over the place, you know, after my arrest. And it's interesting because one of the guards who was involved in the Kerry Babies case was the chief superintendent detective who put me in the frame. He's still alive, so I should be careful about him, but his name rhymes with liar. I'll say no more. His name rhymes with liar for real or Yeah. Well, Oh, oh yes! Oh yeah! Sorry, yeah. I'm putting two yeah. and two together. So yeah, yeah, his yeah. surname rhymes with lawyer. You're lawyer. saying, yeah, yeah. and it starts yeah. with a D. Uh, it does. It does. And he was the devil. I mean, I, I, he's the closest thing to evil I've ever come across in my life. And he's still alive. He, I think he's in his eighties now in court. And he was the, the evil mastermind behind trying to put me in the frame. Okay. And would he have had, like, what was his reasoning be- behind blaming you? Because, like, you probably, did you have run-ins with him before the murder, or was it just... He... No, 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 I didn't. But, I mean, it's interesting because there's a parallel, and I think this is where Jim Sheridan came in. You, everybody knows about the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. Okay? Yeah. Everybody knows about them and the name of the father. And, you see, so, so a crime occurs... There's a lot of pressure on the police to find it's solve it. So what you do, you you go and falsify evidence against people, mm-hmm. and that happened in the case of the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. And it, it's very 
you know, has parallels with my, my situation, apart from the fact that I'm the Westport one, if you like. Yeah, I think there was like, I suppose, from the outside looking in, and I think it's been said before, like, it it seems like the, the way that the Garda handled um, the right. case was quite unprofessional in terms of collecting right. evidence, like the evidence that the the two guards stated they saw in your hand was the scratches, wasn't it? And they took that um, drawing that was similar to like a kid's drawing. Yeah. And and there was the drawing of the cut on your head or the scratch. I, on oh, I, I didn't I didn't see that. I mean, in fact, nobody could see the, the little scratch on that from the turkey, turkey's yeah. talent. But uh, and, yeah. Yeah. So like in, in your opinion, it was like, even if they were building a case up against someone else and it wasn't you, it, it was still carried out unprofessionally. I think, um, I think is his name, Barry Roach from, I think he's the Irish Times stated that Irish like, Times. that someone should have, if there was a case to be, to be had about even the scratches on your hand, that a camera should have been taken, you yeah. know, and, but it, it wasn't, it was just no. a simplistic, terrible drawing that was, this yeah. was held against you. It's interesting that what talking to you because it's bringing back a lot of stuff which you know from the past. But so as a result of the case, the, the Supreme Court decision, we received evidence from the DPP's department. So in the first um, European arrest warrant case, uh, the judge, Judge Pierre, ordered my extradition to France to face trial. Now I I knew because I was studying law at UCC that there was an appeal against that to the Supreme Court. We did appeal and we did win. Um, but before the the Frank Bottomer received information from the DPP's office, which was very damning of the Guards' inquiry, um, from Eamon Barnes was the D, first DPP was then he passed away sadly. Um, and we received this report, a 46-page critique of the Garda case against me, which Robert Sheehan, one of the DPP's officers, completely produced and rejected all of the, the Garda case against me. So as a result of that, I was able to put in a complaint to an organization called GSOC, the Garda Shia Ombudsman Commission, which, you know, is, is ostensibly supposed to investigate uh, allegations of uh, wrongdoing by Garda Shia and there was a long, I gave them a long statement. Jules gave them a long statement. Maria Farrell gave them a long statement. Uh, it took years and years and years. And eventually a report came out. Now, it it was pretty damning of the guards. But what it highlighted was a large amount of evidence in the original file had disappeared. Statements had disappeared. And more importantly, a six-bar bloodstained gate, which was at the entrance to Mother de Plantier's um, land, mm. had had disappeared and nobody's ever explained why why what happened to the six i mean you can lose a computer or a bird yeah or that's so. not something that, that goes missing likely yeah i mean you you know we know how you get rid of a, a, a like you know you put in your microwave destroy it whatever dump it a, a six bar gate goes missing <sighs> anyway. yeah and you would like that's probably the prime piece of evidence that they have to go on because there was, you know, judging by the pictures that I've seen in the documentaries and newspaper clipping, mm. there was blood on that and there was the yeah, concrete there, block. There, there, yeah, there was there were de there was definitely you know material evidence which would have um taken me out of the frame, as it were, and that evidence was lost. 
And then there there was there was other pieces of evidence then that came way further down the line. I think there was the lady um that said that she saw the black coat soaking in water, but she didn't oh. say this for years, did she? No, and it's actually untrue. And I think that's the subject of a um, a, case, um, a legal case that Jules is taking. She was a Christmas visitor that Christmas of 1996. She was a friend of one of Jules's daughters, Virginia. Um, and I did have a long black coat. It was a great long black coat as well. Really, really, um, you know, good winter coat. Everybody needs one down here. And when Netflix made their documentary, their piece of self-serving demonizing propaganda they got her to say that she had seen a long a, a bucket in the bathroom of prairie cottage which contained a black coat now it's interesting that and this is absolutely provable that that is a nonsense and a lie and in i think the the, doc, uh, the netflix documentary dermot dwyer um the detective who set out to put me in the frame says that um there was no no black coat now when they arrested me first in 1997 they took away all of not all of my clothes exactly but a lot of my best clothes and they took away the, the coat i never had it returned but i did get subsequently an order for my clothes and material taken from me to be returned to me and the first item on the list is a long black coat. I, it wasn't returned to me. I don't know what happened to it. That disappeared. But, uh, and the other thing is this. So on, so she, the, 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 the Italian lady who's a house guest for the Christmas says she sees this coat. And yet, on the Christmas Day swim in Skull, Christmas Day 1996, I am filmed by two people at least with video cameras and I'm wearing that coat you know yeah yeah so like it, it doesn't fit in with her time scale that she gave anyway no, and... No. and actually she, I know she has a verbally retracted statement um, you know she I think she lives in America now yeah and you like you have you have clearly strong opinions on the Netflix documentary and do you think that like that was geared towards a certain uh, narrative. Do you believe, like, have you met any of the people that, you know, your your neighbours and anyone else that featured in that documentary since? And have you spoke to them and have they kind of given you feedback saying that maybe they had said something completely different before before Netflix took, you know, maybe a part where they said that you said something when you were drunk. I know that came up a couple of times that you you claim or someone heard you saying you did it and things like this. Like, did were any have you spoke to any of them people to, and have they confirmed that maybe some bits that they were saying on the documentary were taken out of context? Uh, a simple answer. No, I haven't spoken to them. Um, right. So the just jumping, I mean, this is how do you put 26 years of a narrative into a very short time? How long? And we, I don't know how long we've been talking. Um, probably an hour, is it, or thereabouts? Close to it, about 45 minutes, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, maybe we'll wrap it around about 60 minutes uh, in a few more minutes. But so, what happened? So, I wrote after my life unraveled and I had to go into temporary emergency accommodation back in 2020. I wrote to Drew Harris, the Commissioner of Angada Shia Khanna, 
And I said to him, I appealed to him in the letter as a clean pair of hands, because he obviously had nothing to do with this like historic case, to launch what is known as a cold case review. And last year, the year after I wrote the letter, I had a communication from the guard, guard of uh, main office saying that there was going to be a cold case review and was I prepared to cooperate with it? And I replied, yes, absolutely. So there's a cold case review underway. I had anticipated that I might have been approached by the cold case review team by now, or what do we know of April the 1st, 2023. I haven't been approached uh, as of today. Um, and I'm hoping that the cold case review, if it doesn't actually identify the the name and the person who was responsible for the murder, will um, somehow acknowledge that I, I don't have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, my life, my life and a few other people's lives have been not ruined exactly, but really, really severely, uh, and Jules would be one of them really really fucked around with by this false allegation and false narrative yeah um i'm conscious of time but i've about uh, probably three more questions just to run by you and i and i think then maybe maybe you can talk a bit about what you're doing on social media and things like that afterwards yeah yeah, yeah. so first question i suppose ian is if 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 you weren't the prime suspect, but there was this evidence built up against someone else, you know, like the ones that we've named that like that you've been the, the case that's been built up against you, but you were still working as a journalist on the case and say the man, the prime, the prime, uh, the prime candidate is David Cotter, the prime suspect, sorry. Mm. And mm. he's has the scratches. He has, you know, the, the apparent uh, scratch on his forehead and all these things come out. Um, maybe the small bit of history with domestic violence. Would you have continued to write articles about that? And do you think that would have been a credible line of of inquiry for you to follow as a journalist? Would you have kind of kept beating that drum? And would you have would you have thought David Cotter is the guilty man here? Uh, I, that's a very difficult question for me to answer. I don't. I, I tend not to answer hypothetical questions because there's no point. And I think that's a slightly hypothetical question, not criticizing you. No, no, that's okay. Um, I can't really answer that question, to be honest. But it's a bit. Oh, right. But, can I just tell you? Can I just tell you about another little scale within scale? Sure. So, uh, in 2020, where uh, I think after I'd written to Drew Harris uh, asking for a call go through, I had a, I received a phone call from a lady, and she said. Is that Ian Bailey? And I said, yes, who's that? And she said, my name is Sinead O'Connor. And Sinead, the Sinead, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, um, I've been a, I've been a, appointed a journalist by the Sunday Independent, and I'd like to, I'm very interested in your story and your case and your poetry. I, I'd like to interview you. So I said, okay, fine. Um, Come down. So we, we met in West Cork and interviewed me and gave her four hours of interviews. Um, and it's quite clear that she was not a trained professional journalist in as much that she asked questions which were almost impossible to answer. That She'd asked 12 different questions in one question, you know, and that's, you know, difficult. Uh, and I pointed out to her 
you know, it, it would be easier if you just asked me one question, I'll answer that. And she she proclaimed to be sort of sympathetic to my, my situation. And we were going to have dinner after the interviews, and I was waiting for her in a restaurant. And they'd actually set up a really nice table with candles and flowers. And I get a text from her saying, I've had to go back to Dublin, emergency situation. And then the following morning, I had a phone call from her, and she thought she got ranting, got rant, 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 crazy stuff. And eventually, I did take the phone away from me here, and I turned turn the phone off. And then she starts to send me a, a series of texts, and one of them came in, and it said, "You really, you know, you you need help. You should go to rehab." And I let that out to the Sun newspaper, um, and the, the Monday's headline. <laughs> Classic headline in, on the front page news. Sinead tells Bailey to go to rehab. He says, no, 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 which is obviously a play on, on um, you know, the song. Yeah. By, yeah. But um, no, Ian, the only reason I asked that was because earlier on you said, you know, part of being a good journalist is knowing a good story. And I suppose, look, the story of you being implicated in this and, you know, being a suspect is, is a good story for someone. And you yep. know, like that—that's—that's yep. that's the reason I asked that. I was just curious yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, I've always said this that you know, I, I'm a journalist now. As soon as a journalist becomes the subject of the story, as opposed to being the author of the story, their their their, their career as a journalist uh, is over. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always said, you know, I'm. I, this is such an incredible story with so many twists and turns. Um. But unfortunately, I'm the sort of meat in the sandwiches at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful uh, day down there, by the way. I don't know what it's like where you are. It's a beautiful day. Um, blue skies, hardly a cloud, April the 1st. There's a music festival on in a little village called Ballon de Hob um, in West Cork, and of the traditional music festival. And I'll be going over to that later on to not perform. Well, I might do some poetry if somebody wants yeah. me to. And just, I, I suppose, sorry, the, the, the last question I have then in regards to, I suppose, Sophie Tuscan de Plantier and that that line of kind of um, topic on the podcast is if, and I suppose it's a bit hypothetical again, but it's not, you know, anything, you know, difficult, but, you know, like the, the Sophie's family, you know, they seem to think that you are the one, that you are the, the murderer. Yeah. But yeah. if you were to meet her son in person face to face and, um, you had the opportunity to speak. How, like, what, what would you say to him that you know, like, or is there anything that you would say to him? Well, it's a hypothetical question, but I would, yeah. I would, I, I would understand his suffering. I would understand his pain. Um, I think it's a really sad, sad, sad story, and you know, it's it's calling. Uh, I don't know. I can't really answer that question. I'm very sympathetic to mm. that. But they have they have bought the false narrative. Yeah, yeah. And as I mentioned earlier on in this interview, under French law, you don't really need evidence to a bouquet of evidence, isn't it? It's that's what they call uh, it a, bu a bouquet of evidence. I've been I've reading. I've not heard of that expression before, but I might make a note of that because that sounds like a, a, line, a, a title to a poem or a song. Yeah, no, I I was reading about it, and uh, it's kind of um, they can use circumstantial evidence in a in what they call a bouquet of evidence. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or we might say a bucket. 
a bucket, anyway. mercy buckets. <laughs> but um, Ian, do you want to talk a bit about your your podcast and maybe what's going on with you? Um, yeah, which are yeah, arts will, and literature at the moment. So I'm um, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I put a lot of time and effort into to doing the podcast and writing it, and because my sound engineers had this unfortunate accident, I and he has the master. I think I'm going to have to redo it. I have the script. I script, you know, the things. Oh, I, I also do other things as well, talking about scripts. And this wasn't my idea. Somebody else approached me on this one and said, Ian, could you give us a, sh- a shout out? So, you know, I'm a journalist by background. I used to use a typewriter, you know. Do, do, do. Um, so I wrote a little script, like I've written long scripts for the podcast. But I, I'm, I'm, they're calling me the king of the TikTok shout outs. Um, who, who who's they like uh, locals? Well, is it my, 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 my fans, friends, and followers? I've got this sort of um, this. Yeah, are you familiar with Singes, um, the um, uh, the Playboy of the Western world? Yeah, yeah. I actually, would you believe we acted uh, when I was in transition year? That was the play that we did for our variety show. Yeah, and it's funny because somebody actually suggests, you know, Ian, you 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 you've got the, the Playboy syndrome. So what do you mean? And <laughs> You know, in the Playboys, they he he goes over to the island. And he says he, he murdered his father, doesn't he? You know, mm-hmm. and they all think he's grand, absolutely excellent. But then his father turns up, and they hate him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've, I've I've strangely got this sort of and quite a young fan base of people um, who follow me on TikTok. I've got nearly five thousand followers. On TikTok and over twenty thousand views of my little TikToks. So I I do live, like little I do poems on TikTok. I do little things, but I do shout outs. Yeah, and you know I've because I've got the gift of the cab of the words and everything. I do these little fifteen second shout outs for people, um, and most of them I do for nothing. I do for everyone. I I I I, have, I was inundated with requests for shout outs a while back. Uh, this is too much for me. I'm not going to be able to handle this. So, I, not to make money necessarily, but I, I said, right, this is, I'm going to have to charge for these, just a small charge, 15 euros. So, I do um, these little shout outs of people, celebrations or birthdays, anniversaries. But then, for everyone, and I only do get one or two every now and again that I get paid for, uh, I do 10 free ones for charity or sporting clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and for instance, it's the uh, Bantry Rugby Football Club's under 14 Rebelettes are in the county final tomorrow at Constitution, Court Constitution Ground playing uh, Gary Owen. So I, I did one for them. Abu Abu Shailin, the Rebelettes, which you can do. Oh, and I produced the t shirt as well. I took that phrase that um, um, President Obama used you know his slogan was yes we can yeah remember that yeah played it in, in irish yeah and i, I took that um I to, to to round it off you're you're 66 or 67 now no i'm 66 i became a pensioner in january Okay, so what would you like your your legacy to be now? I presume you kind of want to leave all this um, murder trial behind, but I'm sure, given given the nature of it, mm-hmm. it seems to be the the I'm, I don't want to call it a gift, but it seems to be the gift that keeps on giving um, with twists and turns. But 
what would you like your legacy to be moving forward? I, I presume it would be entangled more with the arts and literature than the, the one of the most famous um, murder cases in, in West Cork. Right. So a multi point question, but right. It's, I think it's the story which just keeps on giving and giving. I would hope that before I go up, either upstairs to the, you know, up there or down below, before my life is over, that I will be vindicated and Jules will be vindicated too. Um, yeah. you know, that's always been my prayer that the truth comes out. I have nothing to do with this. I have nothing on my conscience. And uh, I would hope that before I die, my name will be cleared. Yeah, so. Ian Bailey, thank you very much. And we leave it there.